You are listening to a message brought to you by Christian Life Church Lempster. To find out more about us, go to www.clch.cc. So we're in a new series at the moment called uh, A Joyful. And um, last week, last week we did some we did some free heavy lifting, didn't we guys? <laughs> it wasn't a walk in the park. There was a lot there, um, lots going on. And yeah, we looked at, I mean, the brief, briefest overview is that God, because of who he is and who the Trinity is, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, right at the beginning, there was joy in who they were and how they were together. And as an outflowing, overflowing of that joy, the world was created. Why? Because of joy. There is joy throughout the universe. There is joy throughout creation. And it says that God knows the beginning from the end. And that doesn't mean that there's joy at the beginning and it kind of stops. At the end, we're told that there will be joy. There'll be no more pain. There'll be no more suffering. Every tear will be wiped from their eyes as we are in that final heavenly city with the tree in the middle and the um, water river of life flowing through it. The, the roads paved with all the gold and emeralds and fancy stones that I can't name. Uh, it's going to be, there's going to be joy at the end. So if there's joy at the beginning, and if there's joy at the end, and if God is the same yesterday, today, and forever, then there is no minute, there is no second, there is no fragment of history where God's joy is not imminent and eminent throughout his creation. Amen? Amen. So then, of course, the biggest question that we have is, well, where does my suffering and my pain fit into this? And I want to talk about today that sometimes the word right and wrong to talk about suffering isn't the right word. We might say that this pain is wrong, this suffering is wrong. It doesn't fit in, God, with your bigger picture. If you say we should be having joy in this life, but I'm having suffering, how does that fit in together? And the word I want to give you today isn't right or wrong, but it's beauty. The most beautiful things in life often come right at the edge of something scary and fearful. Part of the reason why um, beach sunsets are so beautiful is because you feel so small. You look out across the horizon and all you see is horizon. All you see is sea. All you see is that blue sky turning pink and yellow going on forever. And you realize how small you are in comparison to the beauty that is ahead of you. The night sky, the stars, constellations, the reason that seems so beautiful is again because you feel so small. There is something fearful about the edge of beauty. So, with this in mind, whether or not suffering and pain and illness is right or wrong, there is something about beauty in the midst of our difficulties and our suffering and our pain. You'd be hard-pressed, uh, for example, you'd be hard-pressed to say anything about, for example, the Holocaust was right or good. You'd be hard-pressed, and no one can make that and kind of equate that onto a, a good or good scale. However, out of that Holocaust, out of that, came so many beautiful things. Forgiveness, restoration, redemption. Those are only possible 
because of the pain and suffering that others go through. The story of redemption starts with being lost. The story of redemption starts with going through pain or suffering. The beauty of redemption is only beautiful because of what came before it. Which reminds us last week of the picture of the pregnant lady. Pregnancy is the precursor and process by which a baby is born. Suffering and pain is the precursor and process by which joy is born in our lives. So suffering is not just a, a thing in itself, it is a process through which we find goodness, we find joy, we can find beauty. That doesn't make it easier, but it hopefully gives us context. So today we're looking at something related to how we enact these stories. How we display and demonstrate and literally act out, portray these stories of redemption, of suffering made right again. And I mean, if you're going to put a title to this, it could be The Art of Celebration. Um, I like my alliteration, I called it Feasts, Festers, Friends and Family. And this fits in very, well, yeah, we'll see, we'll see where we go with this. Um, what's the first verse I've got here? So he has made everything beautiful in his time. Not right or wrong, beautiful. God is your vindicator, God brings the judgment, God brings the justice, God brings what's right and wrong. But in our understanding, what has God brought? He has made everything beautiful in his time. He has set eternity in the human heart, yet no one can fathom what God has done. So I know that there's nothing better for people than to be happy and to do good while they live. That each of them may eat and drink and find satisfaction in all their toil. This is the gift of God. Right in the middle of Ecclesiastes, we find, let me just practice in the middle of the Bible, we have here a verse that links up our understanding or lack of understanding of God in the situation we may be in. And quite simply, we can't fathom it. It doesn't say don't try to, but it says enjoy your life. Despite, mis despite not understanding, despite not being able to fit it all into your context and your frame of reference, enjoy what you do. Eat, drink, be merry, find satisfaction in what you do. God doesn't say, here's satisfaction, it's only over here. What he's saying is, whatever you're doing, find satisfa satisfaction in it. There's a verse that later on says, whatever your hand finds to do, do so with all your mind. Colossians tells us, whatever we do, do so unto the Lord. God has put you in situations and places where actually there is space to find joy and satisfaction in. But I also want to focus today on two words that are very close to my heart. Um, that's eat and drink. So let's have a look at what's coming up next. Let's, go to Let's do Leviticus first. So um, I joked to house group on Wednesday that um, to talk about joy, I'd go to the most enjoyable book in the Bible, which you've all read numerous times, which is Leviticus. Um, chapter 23. This is, of course, where God gives his um, blueprints for parties. <laughs> I'm not joking. He thought it was all about dead animals and things. So, um, 
I mean, the first couple of words of Leviticus 23 are just God spoke to Moses, which I think is just crazy. That A, God, we know who he is, speaks. A, he can communicate to us. And Moses, he knows you by name. So before we even get into parties, God exists, he's knowable, and he knows you by name, and he speaks to you. So let's just start with that before we go anywhere. So speak to the Israelites and say to them, these are my appointed festivals. The appointed festivals of the Lord, which you are to proclaim as sacred. They also say solemn. Um, you might see the word solemn sometimes. Or somber, somber assemblies. There are six days when you may work, but the seventh day is a day of Sabbath rest, a day of sacred or solemn assembly. You are not to do any work wherever you live. It is a Sabbath to the Lord. Uh, and before we hit that one, um, this chapter was given at a stage when Israelites have just come out of um, Egypt. They were slaves, and they, as slaves, kind of had things given, not given to them. They had like land, sheep, they could do fishing and stuff, and they had everything they needed to right there, despite being slaves. Now they've been freed from slavery, and the first thing they do, they do is complain about the food. They have said, well, why are we here in the middle of this desert where you've put us to, God, and we had fish there, we had, you know, we could eat and drink there, but now we're here by ourselves. We've got freedom, but no food. How useful is that? And then Moses sets out these um, feasts and appointed times, and he says, um, actually, on the seventh day, you're not going to do any work. Well, how else are you going to get food if you're not working? Oh, wait. They're moving through a desert. They're moving through a place that isn't theirs. They can't just set up shop and that's it, you know, next six days and get, get, get my food sorted and then on the seventh day I can get, you know, sort that out. The Sabbath at this moment was quite awkward because, well, how do we get our food if I'm not working? He says, do not do any regular, ordinary work. I mean, this is where we get our weekend from. But... This isn't just about having a day off. There's something here about trust. That we are meant to trust in a God who provides for us. So the first kind of feast or festival is a weekly thing. There's a weekly remembrance that God provides for us. Rest in this day and age, real rest, is hard. I find myself um, um, with a full-time job, with kids and everything else, I find that even when it comes to a day of rest, that I feel my rest has to be productive. This better be good rest, Jason, or else. At which point I find the whole idea of rest and relaxation just goes out the window. The first, <laughs> when I was 16, and this, this isn't something just because I'm um, older and wiser with responsibility, whatever that means. This is, when I was 16, the first weekend of the summer holidays, well, the first, no, I think it was like study, 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 because my brothers weren't around. The first day of study, we were meant to be studying, but of course, no one does that. Um, my brothers were at school, and I was at home, and I was like, what, what, what do I do? What do I do? I spent three hours thinking about what do I do with all this freedom, all, all this time. And I got really quite anxious. You don't get cabin fever. You're meant to get that after like a few weeks, aren't you? I got it within a few hours. I just got so itchy with having to do something. And I think many of us feel the same when it comes to rest, when it comes to holiday. You work and work and work and work and work and work and work, and then you get a week off, and the first day you're like, what do I do? What, what do I do with this time? Um, some of you guys are blessed with retirement. I say blessed, you might use other words. You probably find that whole process and situation very similar. You've been working, 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 working. You haven't dropped dead, thankfully. You've got retirement. So what do you do with that? How do you rest well? How do you rest giving hope and trust that God will provide everything that you need? That's the first festival. 
Sabbath. Next one. Um, Lord's Passover. Um, I'm gonna. I'm sorry. I'm lipsing through this really quickly. Um, I'm not going to highlight too many of them. There's the Passover, which is of course when um, people get together and they eat what on the Passover? Lamb. When do we eat lamb? Sorry. Every day. Every day. Yeah. We we're in a single. Uh, <laughs> got a well-paid job. He eats lamb every day. Um, so their feasts and festivals also had certain foods that you ate at certain times. What do we eat? Well, we, at Easter, we eat hot cross buns. Yeah. We have uh, on Christmas pancake. Yeah, pancake. Pancake day. Um, then yeah. So turkey. Yeah, Christmas. That's that's, that's one of them. <laughs> Christmas pudding. So. What God sets up here isn't just a case of like, these are rules, but he's kind of saying at certain times we do certain things. Now, the reason why it was a lamb was an important thing, because when you talk about the lamb, the lamb was what? It was sacrificed. For who? The firstborn of each family. A family with kids was blessed when they ate lamb, because that lamb represented the firstborn of their family, and it also represented the firstborn being killed of the Egyptians that enabled them to be free. So we're not just sitting around here with, you know, lamb and mint sauce and tatties. What we're doing here is we're retelling the story of being freed from slavery. We are retelling the story of how this family is even in existence. How God passed over his people because of the blood offered by that sacrifice. That's not a sad moment, that's a moment of rejoicing. When you guys get a decent hunk of meat, slow roasted, Done to perfection, medium rare, juices out on the gravy. Yeah, they're, they're not throwing these meals together, they're preparing these. Yeah, you feel good when you invite people around, the family comes around the table. You've got little kids, you've got older kids, you've got generations coming together around the food. The food wasn't just given to a priest to, to barbecue and leave it on the side and burn to a crisp. The food was offered, it was barbecued by the priest, but he gave it back. The priest took some of it and gave it back, even at most of the offerings that were given. So these feasts, these, these moments in, in Israelite history have meaning. Next one. Um, so again, do no work. We, I like that. That's, that's good. Don't do any work. Um, food offering, seventh day, sacred assembly. Uh, next one. Ah, so harvest. So harvest, once you've gathered all the fruits and veg in, um, it then says, here he is to wave the sheaf before the Lord. Um, so got some kind of weird ceremony things going on here. You've got a sheaf, like a kind of palm tree kind of thing, and the priest is waving it. Um, but also, in a bit, you'll see where, oh, we'll get there in a second actually. Um, and it says it's a wave offering. Another, another version. It says, here's a wave offering to the Lord. Which I think is quite an interesting one. Um, but then, so we're weird, aren't we? We're strange. We get ships, and we, so we get a big ship. And what do we do with the ship on its first voyage? We throw a bottle of champagne on it. What's that about? Yeah? So we do these things to what? Commemorate things. We do these to kind of to make it different, to stand out to the normal hustle and bustle of each normal working day. Yeah, it's not every day that the priest just gets a palm leaf and just kind of waves it around as a wave offering. 
Um, next one. On the day we... So another lamb. Yeah, so they sacrifice it and they eat it. That's what they do. They don't just leave it there. Uh, grain offering. So here you've got like a full menu going on. Because when, when, when it's offered, it's not just burned. There's, there's one special offering that's burned completely to a crisp. But most of them are offerings, but the priests do stuff with it, like prepare it into a meal. It's what they did. It's what they do. So here we have a menu for the day, a drink offering of a quarter of a hill of one. Here you literally have your meat, two veg, and a decent uh, beverage at the end. It doesn't sound to me like these religious moments are particularly religious in the sense that we might give it. We might look at these sometimes in Leviticus and be like, that seems really religious, that seems really traditional, that seems really rule-oriented. But what you notice is, as we go, we've got one more to go. As we go through these, you notice that what God's trying to do is set up a diary, a calendar, an agenda that forces you out of your life, forces you out of your day-to-day, and pushes you into something that God is trying to remind you of. This is the purpose of feasts, of feasting, festivals, and celebration. To push us out of our day today so that we are reminded about some character and aspect of who God is. Um, next one. Uh, count off 50 days. So after that, 50 days after the harvest, I think. Um, I don't know what your version says, but 50 days. Pentecost. So this is the festival of Pentecost. And now Pentecost, in the New Testament, what happens? Holy Spirit comes. It was a festival they were celebrating. After the seventh Sabbath, and then present an offering of new grain to the Lord. Next one. Ah, this is an interesting one. So this is a festival where when they're reaping from the harvest, during their harvest time, um, do not go to the very edges because you need to leave it for the poor. Yeah? Now, this is a feast and a festival, but it's reminding us about what? It's reminding us that actually, once we were aliens and strangers in a place, God provided for us. So now we're in a separate place. As we come to a space of harvest, let us give space over to the foreigner, to the alien, that they may have stuff to be from us. And again, it's pushing us out of our normal day-to-day, trying to get everything we possibly can from what we've done, and giving space for God to work and for God to move in the margins of our lives. It might be religious, but it's definitely good. Not all religion is bad. So leave them for the poor and the foreigner, which I amongst you, I am the Lord your God. I just love that he says, leave them for the poor and the foreigner, I kind of, and then you're saying, I am your God. Like, there's a link there. Like, kind of, God isn't just, sorry, by the way. God's saying, like, even if you're, even if you're leaving this stuff, I'm your God. I'm providing for you. I'm providing for them through you. Yeah? Next one. Uh, this one's got music involved. So on the first day of the seventh month, you were to have a day of Sabbath rest, a sacred assembly commemorated with trumpets. That's quite good. Uh, music festivals are good. Yeah, we like those. Uh, next one. Day of Atonement. Uh, this is quite a solemn moment because this is the one where you have like two goats, a scapegoat, and I can't remember what the other one's called. Um, but the Day of Atonement, I'm not going to go into too much detail on that one. That's going to be, that's a, that's a preaching itself. Next one. Uh, you must deny yourselves. Not quite so good. 
Um, it's a feast, or it's a festival, it's a moment in their calendar where I am not the subject of my day. You're meant to deny yourself from the evening to the following evening to observe Sabbath. So there's a, there's a moment in there. We have Lent, don't we, I guess? Yeah? And the idea being that, again, I'm God's providing for me, even when, I have, even when I'm feeling that there's nothing. Next one. Aha, so here's a cool one. So, say to the Israelites, on the 15th day of the 7th month, um, there's also really, if you have a look at this, if you want, want to do some homework, uh, look at uh, Leviticus 23 and just look at the number 7, and where it appears or how it appears, it's, it's, there's some cool stuff there. On the 15th day of the 7th month, the Lord's Festival of Tabernacles. Tabernacles is also known as the Hence. Yeah? And, it's, and it lasts for seven days. The first day, sacred assembly, do no work. That's good. For seven days, present food offerings to the Lord. Now, by presenting food offerings to the Lord, we present it to the Lord, and what do we do with it? We eat it. That's kind of what happens. This is over to you, God. Thank you. Now we get to eat of the offering that we have given back over to God. For seven days, and on the eighth day, hold a sacred assembly and present a food offering to the Lord. It is the closing assembly, do no regular work. So, um, first of all, tabernacles, tents. Um, if, I mean, what, if you want to jump off, tip into the picture. There's a picture. So, they still do this. So, um, Jews still make these. They're called succots. Succots. Um, sounds like a kind of Star Wars alien, but succots. And this is what they look like. Um, in, in, in effect, they're going glamping for a week. Now, the last time, I don't know if you guys have ever been to a Christian festival, but it's got a very different vibe about it, doesn't it? Yeah? It's completely out of your normal day-to-day, completely. You have no running water, you have the toilets, so a very interesting place. And when it comes to festivals, you're around people. I mean, you're not going to spend all day in that, are you? You're going to be out and about, you're going to be with people, with families, kids are going to be playing with other kids' families other family's kids, and everyone gets involved in putting this up. If you look on the inside, you can see the uh, paper chains. They're trying to make it look a little bit pretty. But the Jews were told to go camping. This is one of three pilgrimage festivals, because the whole Jewish nation was meant to go to this space together. Now again, it might be religious, but it's good, right? So this tent... Um, Jews today say that this is purely because, as it's like a, a post-harvest festival. So it's a post-harvest festival. This is a reminder of what farmers did when they were harvesting. They used to make these little tents like, so they could spend more time harvesting the food. For us as Christians, post-Jesus, this stands for something so much more than just a practical time to get together. Because the Bible tells us that God dwelt in the tent, in the temple, yeah? God dwelt in the temple. Up until the point when Jesus came, he died, the curtain in the temple was ripped open, and then what happened? The spirit came out, and then Jesus rose again, and now that spirit is what? In us. So this festival of tents is also, for us as Christians, a very special moment when we realise that it's not just us dwelling in tents, it's God dwelling in us. It's a reminder 
that we get to be a community together of people who all together, not just me by myself, not just you by yourself, but us together as community, as family, as one nation, as one nation under God, um, as a nation, we represent who God is. So these festivals have an awful lot of meaning and significance behind them. Um, next verse, uh, we're around about 30 now, I think. We go back. Ah, so beginning with the 15th day of the seventh month, after you have gathered the crops of the land, celebrate the festival to the Lord for seven days. The first day, uh, aha, here's a really cool bit. So they've just had festival of tents and the, um, the camping. And now another festival, which comes on the very last day of that set of festivals, they're told to, on the first day, so it's in the last day of the tenting, glamping, camping, now on the first day of that next one, you are to take branches from luxuriant trees. Now the Hebrew for this, listen, is trees that look good. If I say that, trees that look good, trees that look good in your sight, what story in the Bible do you immediately think of? Adam and Eve. Yeah, Adam and Eve? Because why did Eve go to that tree? <laughs> it looked good. Yeah. So you're saying, go and take branches and trees that look good to you. Willows and other leafy trees. Uh, and there's another, oh, it doesn't do it in this version. So when it says leafy trees, what it means is trees by rivers. Which, chap which book in the Bible do we, do we hear very much about trees next to rivers? Revelation. In this, fest in this festival of camping, we finish off with a moment when everyone's meant to get some kind of palm tree, some leaf, something that looks good to them by going to particular places of trees that look good, of trees that are by rivers, and they're coming together and then rejoice before the Lord for another seven days. Now, there's something really cool here, of course, about how this fits in to explain to little kids what the story is. Because again, this is a family affair. What we have here is just so many allusions to who Jesus is and what he's done, is that it's really hard to read these, read these without having an appreciation, a great appreciation of who Jesus is and what he's done. Now, today, what Jews do is that they use this also as, a, as an example. Um, they, kind of, they kind of extend the, the tradition out. So as well as celebrating with kind of palm trees and things, um, as well as celebrating with Jews, they also take the Torah out of the Ark. So in a Jewish synagogue, you have the Ark, which is where the word of the Lord is, the Torah, and they bring it out. And when they bring it out, um, they open it up, and the first person who kind of holds the Torah as they unscroll the scroll um, is called the bride. They open it up, the Torah, all the way around. And what they do is, a kind of, as a, as a synagogue, they all go out, taking it out of the synagogue. Um, and they're rolling this out, singing, dancing, all that kind of stuff. It's a celebration, right? First person who's got, who's got it is the bride. They open it up, open it up, open it up, um, out of the synagogue, out of the streets. 
And the very last person who gets it is called the bridegroom. So what you've got here is a whole picture of the word of God, what it means, celebration moving from inside the temple to outside. You have a wedding happening between the first and the last bits of the Torah, the very words of God. And what you've got here is also a picture of what the church is here to represent. We're not here to be just sombre, solemn people, holier than thou, that seem to enjoy spending time with other people on Sundays. We are people who are called to so much more than a day-to-day drudgery that many people live in. There is no aspect of your life that, that God's spirit and presence does not touch. These, these celebrations are here to remind us that we fit into a very intricate web of God's significance and meaning. And if we're part of this, how can we not be joyful? How can we not appreciate these things? Regardless of the suffering and the pain and the grief we might be going through, when this day turns up and turns up in the diary, we're going to that party. When it's up on the calendar, we're going camping. When that Saturday, when that Friday Saturday evening comes, we're getting that land. Regardless of my feelings and emotions, God's put these things in place. Now we're evangelicals. We like we like novelty. Anything that kind of repeats itself more than twice, we kind of get bored of. Kind of it stinks of religion. Go away. But what we try, what God is trying to do here, this is I think really as evangelicals, we need to get a hold back of again, is this idea of rhythm, of routine of steps and processes that God has put in place very wisely. About he knows our hearts. He knows how we are. He knows what makes us who we are. He knows what we're likely to do. So he says, okay, you, you do you. That's great. But you're still going to follow some of these things that I've put in place for you. Now, very recently, this this celebration of the Torah was, um, it's like, I can't remember what it's called, Shitan Torah, Shuram Torah, something like that, was celebrated last night. No, not before last. So in Israel, Friday night, this celebration was happening. People were celebrating the Torah, people were celebrating waving, families, kids were in the streets. They're celebrating the end of the seven days of camping and festivities. This weekend, finishing off the harvest, they're coming back to God and saying, thank you, God, for who you are. You've got a wedding between the bride and the bridegroom. You've got festivities in the streets. You have a reason to be happy. And in the middle of all of that, what happened? We just saw a few thousand rockets launched. In the midst of the celebration, that has turned into suffering. We talk about these things sometimes as if they're kind of over there, some kind of religious book. 
But there are people who are going through this very issue right now of how do you celebrate in suffering? Entire families, generations lost with a few rockets going on. Now, I don't know where you stand on this. I don't need to be quite, I don't know where I stand on this whole Israel-Palestine thing. But what I do know is that people who are celebrating for any particular reason, to have that ruined by war, intentionally there to destroy and kill, is not part of a world where we see God's kingdom being born out. So we're going to spend just a minute now, just praying. I'd like like to join in with me. God, this is a prime example of things, of times that we don't understand what's going on in the world. Where hope of peace which only a couple of years ago seemed to be on the brink of happening. God, we come to you again to say we don't understand this world. Help us, God, to be people that bring peace wherever we may go. Because we know that war ultimately starts in the heart. For all the families, that have experienced loss over the past um, 24, 36 hours. God, we just pray that your presence and your peace is with them right now. We want to pray for a quick result, resolution to this fighting, to this war. Uh, in the space of half a day, it's turned from, from being from the, from there being frictions to now there being fighting in the streets. Innocence being lost. So God, we just ask your will, that your love, that your peace be a part of what's happening from now on. You want to pray a stop, a stop between the fighting, the shooting, the carelessness. It says in your word that you, you have won the battle. The battle is yours, God. You will be the vindication. God, I want to pray for humility on either side of this. For the leaders to make the right call. For the leaders to make the call that brings the most love into this situation. We thank you, God, that you ultimately know all things. We trust in you. Amen. So, where does this leave us as Christians with these feasts and festivals and celebrations? Um, we can put Philippians. Yeah, let's do Philippians. The Philippians verse up. Be careful. Oh, back one. Up on him. Uh, ESV version. Philippians 4, there should be 6 to... I thought I'd put both. There we go. So, the verse that you're probably most familiar with is this one. Do not be anxious about everything. Any, sorry, do not be anxious about anything. But in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. 
Um, our girls know this verse, and we've given them like a condensed version, and they've got actions to it, they love it, it's great. However, um, I've often mistaken the context of this. The KJV gives a very interesting translation of the first couple of words, which is, be careful for nothing. Now, as a, as a person, I take way too much care about so many small things in my day. And it stresses me out no end. Will I get there on time? Is this shirt too creased? Do I have enough nappies? Not for me. I mean, there's so many things that you might go through. You know, am I, make, am I making the conversation interesting enough? Am I asking them enough questions about them? Am I coming across as rude and um, too much? Am I coming across as standoffish? And all the, you know, that's just in a conversation. You guys will have so many different things that you are thinking of, worrying about at any one, any one point. And when Philippians says, do not be anxious about anything, it's not just about what God can provide, it's about what care for, care for nothing. Care for nothing. That's quite a different message to what most of us hear, right? We're called to be good stewards. We're called to take care of what's been given to us. We're told to, to put meaning and importance onto lots of things in our daily lives. And yet this verse, when you kind of pass it back and look at what the words mean, it's, well, care for nothing. So what's this got to do with joy? Because sometimes, by caring too much, we rob ourselves of the joy of being free. We become slaves to our own expectations and priorities by trying to make that provision for ourselves. Now, I'm not saying this about being careless. Because, especially when I'm at school, and I'm speaking to the kids who've done something wrong, and their response is, I don't care. I don't care. Okay, whatever. That's, that's not what we mean here. It doesn't mean, care, doesn't mean that level of care for nothing. It means, if something's gone wrong, oh, okay, cool. It's not the end of the world. We need, to be, we need to learn a certain level of distance from the expectations and priorities that we may have. Which means the final point of what I'm going to talk about today is uh, 1 Thessalonians. There we go. For what is our hope, our joy, or the crown in which we will glory in the presence of our Lord Jesus when he comes? Is it not you? Indeed, you are our glory and joy. Paul is talking to other people in a church that he set up, and he says, you are our glory. You are our joy. Now, Spurgeon uh, gave a quote. It goes something like this. I'm paraphrasing. When we talk about joy, our faces should be cheerful, exuberant, and alight. When we talk about hell, your normal faces will do. <laughs> which, which gives me this kind of thought that actually most people who go to church maybe don't give off this vibe that other people in church are your glory and your joy. Yeah? Paul is saying that you are our glory, you are our joy. Other people in church, and sometimes we, sometimes, many times we may not feel that at all. The person who asks too many questions, 
the person who doesn't ask any questions, the person who comes and goes first and last to make sure that no one gets to talk to them, the person that seems to always be in conversation at the end and not helping anyone out at the end until suddenly they turn around and, oh, look, it's all been gone away. Um, not, not, not in this church, not in this church, definitely another church. But, <laughs> I'm joking, it's really hard, isn't it? Um, church is, church people, Christian people, brothers and sisters in Christ are meant to be agile. We're meant to find space where we enjoy each other. Now, this is where we finish off because how many of you have been around each other's house? I know you have, there's a good good proportion to have, but we've just heard about being careful for nothing and often the first barrier, and I'm I'm going to be completely honest about this, we've got Mark and Nikki in the room, Um, they're going to be coming up to our house this afternoon. Now to bring up this morning and say, A, I'm feeling rubbish. But because I'm feeling rubbish, the house is an absolute mess. So can we please cancel our lunch date for another time? So with that in mind, one of the first barriers of actually experiencing joy is we are afraid of allowing ourselves to be seen properly by other people. Because if you come to my house, you're really going to see what I'm like. If you come around my house, you're going to see my really awkward music collection. If you come around my house, you're going to see uh, the mess of my dirty underwear that should have been in the washing machine about two weeks ago, but still hasn't been done because it isn't drying on the Friday night to the Saturday morning and it isn't going to get sorted. You're going to see the hole in the wall from when I hit the door too much and a little bit angry. Uh, You're going to see the smashed up plates because the girls are playing in and out of the cupboards with all the dining and crockery. You're going to see all the stains on the sofa. You're going to see a me that I don't want you to see. And we say, ah, another time. But what we miss out is the joy of being together. You are our glory. You are our joy. First John or second John or something says, um, we long to see you face to face, so then our joy will be complete. I know church people are awkward. I'm one of them. But that shouldn't stop us trying. Care. Care less than you do about what people think of you. Care less about how you think about other people. Many of you can hold a really good conversation with my girls. You know, they're five and nine. I mean, Camilla, actually, she's five years old. So if you can hold a conversation with Camilla, you can hold a conversation with pretty much anyone, let's be honest. (laughs) If you can talk nicely to a five-year-old, you can talk nicely to someone else at church who maybe doesn't share all the same views and tastes that you do. It doesn't matter what they serve you for food. Eat it. Be glad. You've got food in front of you. Not if it's for... <laughs> we've, <laughs> we've recently done the marriage course um, during the week. Uh, Mark and uh, Liz joined in. Uh, Mark is an absolute pain in the backside to cook for. Now, when I, when I first met Mark, I didn't quite get his cutting sarcasm. So he told, he told me about this, uh, this keto diet. And I, I thought, I generally thought he was completely joking up until the second time that we cooked for him. I realised he wasn't joking. He's got a very specific keto paleo diet. Um, so I had to eat quite a lot of humble pie because I thought he was genuinely just adding me on. Um, but yeah, then had to learn to cook. But that's fine. You know, you get over those things. So um, 
I really want to encourage you guys to get around each other, but also to invite other people when you have people around. We have a week, we have a Wednesday night every month where it's not, there's no small group, we're not meeting at Weatherspoons. We put it in to deliberately give you guys space during your month. You can invite someone over. Go out for a drink with someone if you're really, really that, I was going to say anal. I, I sniff. If you're, really that if you're really that worried about having people around your house and about how, how it looks or doesn't work. We've given space and time for that. Um, we try to, you know, we want to have um, more bring and chairs here um, after church on Sundays. Because when you eat around the table, you, you just share more about life. You talk more. And uh, when we share our stories, then we start to realize who we are and where we fit in this crazy thing called church. You're not here to be an island. You're not here to make it work by yourself. No one here is going to make it work by themselves, no matter how great you are. All of us are here. All of us are here to take part in this wonderful job of growing the kingdom of God through church. God has told us to do this through feasts, festivals, commemorating the stories that make us who we are. So when you have a birthday, let someone know. We want to celebrate you. We want to get the cake out. We want to get some presents out. We want to talk about you and how great you are. Today, it was Tina's, well, not today, but this week it was Tina's birthday. Yeah? And Jenny brought a cake along. So Jenny, thank you for that. That's been great. It's a, it's a nice little uh, uh, image of what we're looking at here. Don't be afraid of telling someone it's your birthday. At least tell one person. Then that one person can tell someone else. And they can tell someone else. I'm not saying, you know, proclaim it from the rooftops, but you know, don't, don't downplay those things because that's an opportunity for us to commemorate and to celebrate you. And yes, you are all amazing. And I mean that. Each and every single one of you deserves to be celebrated. Because God has put a story in your life. God has put a history in your life. So let's celebrate, guys. We have reason to be joyful. Let's practice joy. Let's practice celebration around the table, around each other. Let's not be afraid of how we look or how we might come across. Amen? Amen. So God, as we wrap up this morning, we thank you so much that you are a God of joy. That the joy of the Lord is our strength. I thank you, God, that you have you pull us out of our day today and push us into this routine of celebration and feasting and festivals and just celebration, God. And I thank you that you are a God who celebrates. When, when you leave the 99 for the one sheep, what happens? There was great rejoicing. When the, when the um, young virgin found that lost coin, what happened? There was great rejoicing. When the prodigal returns home, what happened? There was great rejoicing and a huge party going on. So God, I want to pray that this church becomes a church known for its parties, a church known for its food, a church known for the smile that we have when we talk about church. God, let us not just be somber and solemn because we have the weight of the world on us, because God, I thank you that we can care less about those things because our providence you provide for us God in every single possible way we love you Jesus and say thank you for all that you've done for us Amen